This morning we're going to continue our journey together through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, We last week noted a recurring pattern that is beginning to emerge in the narrative and is going to continue to emerge all throughout the Bible, really, whereby God graciously provides something good and sinful man finds a way to mess it up and then God responds both with justice but with even more grace, with unmerited favor and mercy. And we saw it in the story of Adam and Eve. God provided the garden, but they chose the fruit instead. And so God kicks them out of the garden and graciously provides sacrifice, though, as a means of atoning for and saving their lives. We saw it with Cain, Adam and Eve's first son, who corrupted his sacrifice and then killed his brother Abel. God kicks Cain out of his home as well. Once again, God graciously marks him with a hedge of protection, provides him with a new home, the birth of human civilization. But Cain and his lineage subvert God's gift of society, and yet again, God responds by graciously providing another offspring for Eve, a third son, Seth, And despite a few promising patriarchs and Seth's line, we hear at the open of chapter 6, Genesis, that even Seth's progeny are now engaging in sexual relations with fallen angels, now turned demons, the sons of God, in an attempt to once again become like gods themselves. I covered that in last week's episode of our Ask the Pastor podcast, but we ended the sermon last week with the most damning declaration of human depravity and the most dire diagnosis of the extent of human sin anywhere in the Bible. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. The passage continues on to say the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, uh, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And for a moment it appeared as though all hope for humankind would be forever lost. But then we read in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this morning, God is going to offer us one of the most powerful displays of his continued justice and grace in all of Scripture here in the story of the flood. Once again, out of the rubble and the wreckage of humanity's sinful rebellion, our perversion of God's gracious provision, God, in his unfailing mercy, steps in and sovereignly chooses to save a righteous remnant. We read in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, it's important to recognize here, right at the outset, that this will will become painfully obvious when we get to the end of chapter 9, where we're going to discover that Noah's rap sheet includes both public intoxication and indecent exposure. Noah was not perfect. Okay, John Piper explains blameless in the Old Testament doesn't always mean sinless. A man is blameless if he does not persist in his blameworthy actions, if he hates them and turns from them and comes back to God seeking mercy. You think of Job, 
In Job 1.1, we hear Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. doesn't mean he never did any evil. He turned from it. Neither does righteous mean sinless. In the Old Testament, a righteous man is a sinner who hates his sin, turns from it, trusts in God, pursues obedience, and enjoys acceptance by grace. We read in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's not that he's never sinned. It's that God doesn't count it against him. His sin is forgiven and covered. And we've been highlighting God's gracious provision all along. If Noah had been truly perfect, there would have been no need for God's grace. Grace is undeserved favor, unearned blessing, but Romans 3 says none is perfect. No, not one. Make no mistake, Noah needed grace. In fact, some English translations, like the good old King James Version, render the Hebrew word here in 6.8 as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and we'll return to that point later. But I want to do three things this morning. Three things. First, we're simply going to read the story of the flood together, the whole story from chapter 6 to 8. It's going to take a while, and so you can get your legs warmed up there at home if you plan to stand with me for the reading of God's Word today. That's going to be part one. Part two, I want to warn you of three potential ways that I think we can get this story wrong, misinterpret, or at least miss the point. And then finally, in part three, we will turn and consider how we ought to interpret it. Specifically, I think there are three main points that God wants to drive home for us here in the flood story. And so first things first, let's read it together, beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. We'll go all the way up through chapter 8, verse 19, if you want to stand with me as you're able there at home for the reading of God's word. Follow along in your Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all 
that God commanded him. In chapter 7, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds, of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded him. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, Noah's wife, three wives, and his sons, With them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. 
and waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening. Behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. He waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. So in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray now as we devote ourselves to its study, to its interpretation, and its application in our lives, we pray that you would change us. We want to study not for information, but for transformation. We need to be transformed more, conformed more this morning into the image of your Son. God, we pray that you would do this not only for our sanctification, but for your glory. Mostly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, part two. Part two, how we get this story wrong. I'll give you three ways we get this story wrong with three contrasting pairs of false dichotomies. A false dichotomy is when someone says, you have to either interpret the passage this way or that way, but neither way fully encapsulates the full truth. And so the first way that we get this story wrong is by turning the flood into a kid's story. Now, perhaps parents You've got kids at home watching along with you right now. That's good. I hope you do. I suppose the flood can be a children's story in the same way that a faithful Christian farmer might bring his young daughter with him along to help him slaughter the pigs because he wants her to understand and appreciate the cost of eating bacon. In that sense, yes, this is absolutely a story that our kids need to hear. But the problem comes when I say the flood, or especially when I say Noah's Ark, which is, by the way, not the title of this story. But if I say Noah's Ark, many of you picture this. You picture happy, smiley animals. When what you should be picturing is this. A man and a woman being pummeled by waves, surrounded by the lifeless bodies of others drowned all around them while they desperately try to push a fourth child up onto the last hilltop left in sight, a rock forebodingly being shared with a mother tiger and her cubs while vultures circle overhead. That's a picture of the flood. 
Donald Miller ponders, my Sunday school teachers turned the Bible narrative into children's fables. They talked about Noah and the ark because the story had animals in it. They failed to mention this was when God massacred all of humanity. Can you imagine a children's book about Noah's ark, complete with paintings of people gasping in gallons of water, mothers grasping their children while their bodies go flying down white rapid rivers, the children's tiny heads being bashed against rocks or hung up in fallen trees. I don't think a children's book like that would sell many copies. And yet, we also miss the point of this story if we fail to receive it with childlike faith. Remember, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That doesn't mean blind faith. It doesn't mean we plug our ears and turn a blind eye every time we find something in the Bible that we don't like. Childlike faith is simply humbly trusting in the Lord. Listen, God is big enough to handle your questions and your doubts. God knows that I have my own. In fact, this story featured prominently in my own master's thesis paper at the conclusion of my divinity school work when I was at the height of my own atheism. Let me just read you an excerpt from my capstone thesis paper. I said, I find it difficult to believe a 600-year-old man built a wooden supertanker capable of accommodating millions of species of animals plus dinosaurs, question mark, so he wouldn't drown in the 4.5 billion cubic kilometers of water that would have been needed to cover the top of Mount Everest. Furthermore, I do not want to accept the theological implications of a story in which God is content to annihilate the entire human race, save eight people. That was me. That was me 10 years ago, almost to the day. And Maybe you're like me this morning. I'll be honest, I still have trouble believing some of the details of this story. And we could get bogged down this morning debating the tensile strength of gopher wood, the, the geological fossil record, where 4.5 billion cubic kilometers of water could have possibly come from and gone to once the flood abated. But let me just try and cut through all of that this morning by asking a simple question. Do we believe that there really is an all-powerful God behind this story, capable of creating the entire universe in six days? And if so, then why would space on an ark or volume of water, or getting two of every animal to parade voluntarily right onto the boat, why would any of that prove to be problematic, an insurmountable problem for God? I mean, if, if you get your kicks off of this kind of stuff, off of proving that the flood not only could have happened, but necessarily definitely happened, then knock yourself out. There's lots of Christian documentaries out there that you can uh, check out. Personally, I would rather just receive it in faith. I would rather admit that this is a story with some pretty incredible, literally unbelievable details that I simply have to accept in faith. And that leads us to the second way that we get this story wrong. 
by overemphasizing either its literal nature or its symbolic nature to the exclusion of the other. Some Christians get so dogmatic about the literal, non-fictional, historical dimension of this story that they miss the whole point. After all, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament interprets the flood symbolically. He says God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Peter claims the flood was a symbol. It was an analogy, a metaphor pointing forward to Christian baptism. Now, lest you think that I'm questioning the historicity of the flood, while we're still in the New Testament, let's turn to Matthew 24 and recognize that Jesus himself attests to the literal nature of the flood when discussing his second coming, his future return to the earth. Jesus remarks, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So according to Jesus, to question the historicity of the flood is to question the literal return of Jesus for his bride. That's a pretty core doctrine. That is week 10 of 10 in our current Christian Foundations class. So we get ourselves in trouble by overemphasizing either the literal or the symbolic dimension of the story. It's not either or, it's both and. And lastly, we get the story wrong when we make it all about either God's justice or all about his grace. Which is it? Is this story about God's wrath against sin or about his mercy towards Noah? Should we focus on God's justice and finally giving fallen sinful man what we deserved all along or focus on God's grace in sparing us as a species by saving Noah? The answer, once again, is both. And that brings us to part Three, how we ought to interpret the flood. You know, if you ever have questions about how to interpret any passage of the Bible, do you know the best commentary on the Bible there is? It's the Bible. We call this principle sola scriptura, scripture alone. Because the Bible alone is inerrant as the word of God. It makes no errors and therefore scripture alone will interpret itself infallibly. Just let Scripture interpret Scripture. And speaking of our Christian Foundations class, that's the very doctrine we're going to be discussing this morning here at 1045 a.m. on Sunday. I hope you can join us for that. But as you might expect with a story of such cataclysmic and world-altering proportions, the flood account is pretty important and is referenced many times throughout the Bible, some of which we've already noted, but I want to point us to three passages in the time we have left that will help us discern what this story really is all about. The first is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5-9. through 9. The Apostle Peter is writing here to reassure a church that is being harassed by the heretical, self-serving, false teachers. 
of their day, that those apostates will ultimately pay for their sin, and that God will also save and preserve the godly true believers to the end. Peter writes, If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Two key points there. Two key points. Number one, God executes retribution. Retribution is a fancy word that means repayment according to merits or demerits, especially when we're talking about evil. In other words, justice. God is just. God will not let go evil unpunished. Peter declares, if God didn't spare the ancient world when he brought a flood to wipe out all the ungodly, you better believe there's a day of judgment coming for these wicked false teachers as well. And friends, you can draw all the smiling cartoon animals you want, but there is no getting around the fact that the flood is a story about God's wrath against sin. God tells us so himself. Back in Genesis chapter 6, God is not capricious. He's not erratic. He doesn't create and wipe out worlds on a mere whim. God carefully thoughtfully take stock of the situation on earth. He sees every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so he decides. In sadness, he mourns the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. And just in case you missed it, God repeats that again in verses 11 through 13. Remember, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. He repeats it again in verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon all the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. He repeats it again in chapter 7. In seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And again, later in chapter 7, all flesh died that moved all on the earth, all mankind, everything on dry land and whose nostrils with the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. And God will remind us two more times next week in chapters 8 and 9 as well of this fact. It's almost like God is highlighting the fact that he really, really hates sin. Because he does. God hates sin. And God will execute justice. And I wonder how much of the world's confusion about this point is a result of the church today failing to confront people with the dire reality of their situation. Hell has become a four-letter word in many churches in our country today, even so-called evangelical churches. You know, after all, they say that you, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, 
And so many pastors end up sounding more like used car salesmen than Bible preachers. They don't dare mention hell. They don't dare mention God's wrath against sin. They don't dare mention divine justice and retribution lest we get branded as a hateful, intolerant, fear-mongering preacher. Instead, we'll just love people into the kingdom. The gospel of God's universal love sells better than the truth about sin. God loves you. God loves everyone unconditionally. Does he? You tell me. Does God love everyone unconditionally? Here's what my Bible says. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Leviticus 20.23, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, therefore I detested them. Hosea 9.15, I began to hate them, Israel, because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Malachi 1.3, Esau, I have hated. Friends, God really hates sin. He really does. In a gospel without any recognition of sin and its rightful punishment, hell, is not only no gospel at all, it doesn't even make any sense. How do you make sense of a gospel that says Jesus saves without anything to save us from? How do you make sense of the truth that Jesus forgives if you've got no sin to be forgiven of. No, God hates sin, and he will execute retribution. And the flood is proof. But, number two, God also offers us rescue. Second Peter 2 also promised passage we just read, if God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials today as well. We heard in Genesis 6-8, Noah found grace, unmerited favor in the eyes of the Lord. And do you know how we find grace today in the eyes of the Lord? 1 Peter chapter 3, we glanced at it already, but this passage is worth taking a second closer look at, reading the full thing. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Romans chapter 6 tells us that in baptism we are united with Christ. And Peter, in effect here, says that when we do that, when we become united with Christ, Jesus becomes like our ark that we climb in to be spared of the wrath of God, God's righteous 
anger against sin. Instead, now, Jesus brings us safely, we hear, to God. He reconciles us into right relationship with a holy, perfect, righteous God. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, Peter tells us. There's nothing magic about baptismal water. The physical act of baptism is just as symbolic as Jesus being our saving ark. Baptism is a symbol of an internal spiritual transformation in the heart of the believer who has repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus alone. His sacrificial death in my place on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, his resurrection from the dead, which purchased my own new life, a clean conscience before God. Friends, Jesus is God's rescue plan for you, for me. He bore the flood of God's wrath in order to bring you safely to God, the Father. He's your ark. Get in. But listen, his salvation is not for everyone. It is only for those who, number three, respond in faith. God calls us to respond in faith. And your third and concluding New Testament interpretive passage on the flood is Hebrews 11, verse 7, where we hear, by Faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man, but the author of Hebrews explains for us here that it was actually his faith being credited to him as righteousness. Noah was a sinner. Noah was just as in need of grace as you are and I am. What was different about Noah? When God called, Noah responded in faithful obedience. You know, I never realized until I studied this passage this week that we don't hear Noah speak a single word in these three chapters of the flood story. Go back and read it. Not a peep. God speaks and Noah simply listens and acts. He responds. He trusts God and he obeys. God says, I want you to build a boat. Here are its dimensions. Load up millions of animals and without a word, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Friends, do you know how God is calling you to respond in faith to his grace this morning? It's really quite simple. It's a beautiful story in the New Testament about a Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. For sake of time, I'll cut right to the point. The jailer is at the end of his rope, and in desperation, he turns to the Apostle Paul and Silas, his prisoners, and he asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He's God's rescue plan. He's your ark. Get inside. 
I ask you this morning, have you believed in the Lord Jesus and responded to his offer of saving grace by putting your faith and your trust in Christ alone? Let's pray.